Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. On the Scots Care Christmas podcast this week, it felt right to celebrate with a guest who is a pantomime legend. Oh yes, he is. Alan Stewart has been performing since he was 10 years old, with a career that covers TV, radio, singing, musical theatre and, of course, pantomime. At this time of year, it's really lovely to have him join me. Scott's Care. Hi, Alan. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you. How are you? I'm fine. It's all right for you. You just say Merry Christmas. I've got two shows a day to do at the moment, every well, day. Every I day. know. I, I, I see that as Snow White. So that's a tough schedule. You know, do you know what? I want to come on to that, but I want to ask you first. Are you, are you still based in London? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. I've been down here for 35 years now. Really? What was it yes. work that made you move to London? Um, the police were after me. No, <laughs> I, <laughs> I always wanted to live in London. And uh, although I, all my work was in Scotland, television and panto and theatres and everything, uh, the first chance I got to come down was when everything started going in copycats around about the early 80s. So I was now working for LWT instead of Scottish television or BBC Scotland. So I um, I came down to London and I had a house in Scotland. And I thought, I'm going to buy a small studio flat and that'll get me going down here. And within about eight months, I met uh, my wife, Jane, uh, who I'd known for a long time, but we started going out. And all of a sudden I thought, I think my life's down in London. So sold the Scottish house, moved down here, bought a bigger flat and uh, stayed, I've been here ever since. Do you live in a leafy part of London? Now, the reason I ask you that is because I know you're a big dog person because I've read your dog blog, your doggy bloggy. A doggy bloggy. Yeah, and I just wonder, because my kids are always saying, oh, we really want a dog, we really want a dog. And I just know that I'd, be the end up, I'd end up walking it and I'd be the one that ends up picking up the poop. And I just don't know if that's me. Well, listen, I was, I was not particularly a doggy person before. I always liked dogs and I had a dog. Uh, when I was a kid with a little poodle, <clears throat> but I don't really remember much about Torby. That was the that was the dog's name. But uh, it was my birthday coming up. We were in lockdown, and the kids and Jane were all sitting around the house. She said, "We've decided to get your dog for your birthday." And I went, "Oh, ooh, oh, I'm not sure." Anyway, I am besotted with Harry, and Jane is besotted with Harry. Our life is now completely and utterly organised by Harry. That's the way <laughs> the life is. So if you want your life to be organised and to rotate round about the life of a dog, then get it, because it's is, it is the most wonderful thing. It really is. A few of my friends have said that to me. My friend who lives in the outskirts of Glasgow, he says it's a kind of mental health lifesaver as well for him. He gets to take it up the lock side or take it up the reservoir and just spends hours walking the dog and it kind of gets his head back in order. Well, I'm, I'm not the big walker. Jane is the one that right from the start, she, she's lo- she loves getting up in the morning. I hate mornings. That's why I went into show business. So I wouldn't have to get up in the morning. So uh, I don't do that walk. And I do a walk in the afternoon. We split the time. He goes to the office with her and I pick him up and he comes back and take him a walk. 
and at nighttime I do the last walk. So I'm not a big, big walker with them, but I understand what your friends are saying. It really is, uh, when I do do it, it's it's very therapeutic. Very th- therapeutic, that's the word I'm looking for. Now, I don't want to sound like a mad fan, but we met years ago, and you won't remember it. I'll tell you when it was. It was back in the 90s, and I was working as a researcher on BBC Radio 2, and Derek Jameson went on holiday. And yes. you stood in and it, and did. And you know what, Derek Jameson, it was, that was a steep learning curve for me as a, a journalist and researcher, but you oh, stood in and did the show. Do they, do they know me? Something like that, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you stood in, I think you stood in for two weeks and it was just and, so different and, yeah. and it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was doing, uh, I was doing Jolson at the time. It was around about 97, 97. Yeah, that's when I was doing Jolson in the West End in Victoria Palace. And, uh, my profile was up a bit and all of a sudden out of the blue, do you want to take over Wales and Holiday? I went, oh yeah, because I'd done Radio Clyde stuff. And uh, this was something really different because I, the difference with working at the BBC and working on commercial radio is you've got 10 people working for me. And now I find out you were one of them. Yeah, it was, it was great. And scripts written and it was very professional and I loved it. I really did enjoy it. Oh, well, do you know what? It must, you know, like you say, it's 25 years ago and it still stuck with me as a, a great fortnight or whatever it was you did. I really enjoyed working with you. Now, well, it was different. I did it different, obviously, from Jameson. I also had put, made little sketches about things that were happening and the, in the, the, the topical things that were happening. So it was a little bit of comedy that I did. And I, I enjoyed it, as I say. But I love, I've always loved radio. I've always enjoyed that medium of, of being able to create a picture just with sounds and and uh, it was carts you used in those days. It wasn't a computer. So you'd make a cart with it, me talking to myself or something. So, yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun those days. Now, we meant to have this chat a while back, but we, we rescheduled it because you were off working on a cruise ship. Is that is that a good, solid booking for an entertainer like yourself going on the ships? It is, yeah. I've, I've done it from way back, early 70, 70, You probably weren't born. And I went on the QE2 and a couple of Cunard ships. And it was something I always enjoyed because it was it was a place to solidly work because it, you can either fill a theatre. If you don't fill a theatre, then you go on a ship and you know you're going to fill a theatre because you've got a captive audience. So it was a place for me to, 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 to work when I wasn't on television. And then I had a few years off while television was really going strong and I was touring the country. But I've always gone back to it, and uh, I still do it. I still do maybe ten cruises a year, and it's, I still work for Cunard. But uh, I've been I've been doing that and enjoying it for many many years. Yes, I was off on a cruise. That's why I couldn't uh, do it. it. Come in, it was a late booking cruise. Is it difficult to get peace and quiet when you're on the cruise? Because I presume you do the show in the evening, but then you've got to kind of hang around the ship during the day. Well. I, that's that's the worst part of it. Now I've gone from in the early days going on for a month to three weeks to two weeks, and I've got it down to a final. I've got four days. I say I don't come on any longer than four days. So I come in, I do the show, maybe the day after I've been on for for one day. I do it that night, and then I go off the next day and fly home. So that's the only way I'll do it now because number one, I want it, don't want to be away from Harry and my wife. Yes, and number two. I get bored stiff on the ship, believe it or not. As, as, as much as life is luxury, you're actually on your own, other than talking to the odd passenger here and there. So it does get boring. And I suppose when COVID came along, that kind of killed that dead for a while, didn't it? Totally, yeah. There was a whole two years, there was absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no work at all, and I wasn't the only one. Obviously, millions of people were out of work, and uh, 
it was just getting back to kind of normal, semi-normal this year. At the beginning of the year, everyone was still wearing masks and I hated it on the ship. It was horrible. It was a strange, strange atmosphere. So I didn't enjoy it. But in the last four months, it's, it's got back to 100% normality. And next year is back to normal again. So, yeah, it was um, it, it was a strange time those two years because there's never been a time in my life that I haven't worked for two years. I've, I've worked since the age of 12 in the clubs, doing three, four nights a week, 13, 14-year-old. And I've never touched wood. I'm going to touch the desk here. I have never, ever stopped working. So it was a real strange feeling for me not to get up on stage and get that buzz I think, yeah, I spoke to Greg Kane of Hue and Cry and I was asking him yeah. about it and he said it was terrible for him. He got to the point where because he'd been moving their kit around for so many years, he considered getting his HGV license and becoming a driver. Really? Yeah. And he, he was absolutely, you know, he wasn't, you know, taking the mic. He was absolutely serious because I think he sat around for the better part of two years. And for creative people, it can be a real killer that, can't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I am. Um... I, funnily enough, I was talking about this last night. I enjoyed uh, the first lockdown because the kids, my son and daughter, who had been traveling and all over the place, came back to stay. And we, we had a wonderful summer and we, we just sat in the garden and ate and laughed till 10 o'clock. And it, it was a really good first lockdown. But the second one was hell. Yeah. Because number one, um, we had we were going to do a panto, which was cancelled the night before we opened. And then my dear friend, Andy Gray, died um, from COVID. And it was just a horrible time. Everything about it was terrible. So um, it was it was just so good to get back to work when we, we did open up again. I got a lot of great memories of watching Andy Gray on the telly as I was growing yeah. up, you know, and stuff yeah. like City Lights and stuff like that. He was such a brilliant actor, wasn't he? was he was fantastic we we toured together in a couple of plays we did stones in his pockets which is a two-man play about uh irish two irish guys and you play about 12 parts each and that was a, a real real buzz working with andy because you know i had to say to him andy look i've never done this before and um he, he helped me a lot and then we did another play which i wrote with somebody else with ed curtis we wrote a play called canned laughter and grant and Andy and myself were all in it. So, uh, yes, I worked a lot with Andy, and he was uh, it was great fun. We had our moments when we'd scream and shout at each other, but most of the time we were saying, I love you, I love you, and I love you, you know. <laughs> and, and like yourself, he was such a great panto star as well. I'd seen he him was. so many times in panto. And right now, this is what you're right in the middle of, Snow White, and that is a, that is a tough schedule. And I was thinking when I was reading about you doing it, you've done so many, do you find it difficult to come back year after year and think, okay, where are we going to take it this year? It's uh, it's definitely a challenge. And the, the more we've done, this is actually my 24th uh, Edinburgh Panto. And uh, we're in a new theatre. We're in the Festival Theatre this year because the Kings is closed now for refurbishment for two, maybe three years. So it's all been a, a, a steep learning curve walking out onto... Uh, a massive stage and a massive auditorium compared to the Kings. Although I've worked big theatres all over the country, I've done Southampton, which is a 3,000-seater. Um, this just, we're so used to doing this in the Kings that it feels so different. But it's been great. It's been exciting. And Grant and I are still here. And we've got Jordan now. He's on his third year on the team. So 
we we have to find new ideas. I've written a, a song which I'm very proud of. I've written a, a parody on "There's Nothing Like a Dame," and I'm not going to give the secret away, but it's got a wonderful magical moment in it halfway through. And uh, you've got to come along and see it because when I wrote it, I went, yes, this is going to be great. So we've got lots of new ideas and it's one of the biggest panthers we've ever done because it's the Palladium set and the Palladium costumes. And because it's such a big stage, we, we needed to use uh, a, a set that was coming from a big stage as well. And the Palladium is one of the biggest. So, um, yeah, we've got all the bells and whistles all being thrown at this show. It's, it's very exciting. Have you always played the dame or did you kind of, did you play when you were a younger man, did you play different parts and then graduate onto the dame? Because the dame is such, it's like the senior role, isn't it? It's such an art to play that correctly. Yeah, well, I I played the, the jack and the beanstalks and I played the, the wishy-washy and buttons. I played all the male parts that there were to play until eventually I thought, this is silly now. Me as a 50-year-old saying to Cinderella, I do love you. It's just not right. You know, so, <laughs> At that time, I knew that once I put a frock on, that would be it. I would not go back to being uh, the, the principal, not principal boy, but being the comic anymore. And I already had the character because I did, I've been doing Auntie May since the early 70s. I did her on television for years and years. And I would do her in, uh, in, in different comedy situations. So I, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And as far as I was concerned, it was different from a lot of dames, especially... English dames, because they tend to be a man in a frock. I always said Auntie May was a woman, and I played her like a woman. I spoke like a woman, laughed like a woman. And when I'm in her uh, her outfit, I think like a woman, I think. And I also think funnier when I'm in her outfit. I can get comedy out of things that Alan Stewart can't get comedy out of. I talk of her almost in the, uh, as another person. And uh, the first time I did it was with Max Boyce in 97. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And I thought, that's it. I'm not going back to uh, being a male anymore. I'll be a woman. There's, there's a... Here I am, 25 <laughs> years late, 24 years later. Social isolation is a big problem for some of the elderly in big cities like London. Scots Care has a social events programme for older Scots with Burns lunches and seaside days out to bring fellow Scots together. If you're an older Scot in London who'd like to join our events, give us a shout at info at scotscare.com. There's a beautiful picture of you on your website and you're at the Barrowlands. The, the, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a really famous Glasgow venue and you're you're singing and playing a guitar and you must be nine or ten. And I showed it to my son, Rafe, who's nine, and he's he's been in Shrek the Musical recently. And I think it's such a beautiful age because I, when he was doing it, I said to him, are you worried about it? Are you nervous? And he goes, no, Dad, I'm, I'm not. I'm not worried. And then we went through the rehearsals, went through the tech rehearsal, went through the, the dress rehearsal. And then on the night, you know, there's three, four hundred people in the audience. And I says, are you nervous now? And he goes, no, I'm not nervous, Dad. And I, I love that. And when I looked at that picture of you, there's this beautiful confidence because at that age, you don't think about the possibility of, humiliation or failure you just get on and do it that's exactly the way it was because I could I was a very very shy kid um my dad was was my manager and uh, was for 25 years 
and he would be going, go, go and speak to, I always remember one, it was Lena Martel, go over and speak to her. And I was saying, I'm not talking to her. I'm still in here. And I was so embarrassed. But put me on the stage, 1,000 people, 2,000 people, not a problem. Straight out there, not a fear in the world. And your son has probably got the same thing. You, you don't, you've got no fear of failing at that, time, at that age because you don't know what failure is. So it was only the older you get, you start to get the dry mouth and the teeth stick into your top lip and all these sort of things happen the further on you go because you know I could go out here and make a fool of myself. Well, so that, that's uh, it. You start to overthink it. Do you exactly. still get nerves? Do you get I mean we're talking about a 60-year career here? Do you do you get nervous? And does it feel like a 60-year career, Alan? Do you does that seem that long ago for you? It doesn't. No, it doesn't. I, I've got a terrible memory. People say to me, do you remember a bit like you were saying earlier on, somebody mentioned to you that we worked together and I don't remember these things, but I can still vividly remember the important things that I did uh, in my career, you know, working with George Martin at uh, Abbey Road. And I'm now only two miles from Abbey Road here where I live. When I went into the studio with him and the Beatles, uh, uh, publisher dick martin come out and said i want to sign that boy and all these things that happened feel like yesterday and i was only 15 at the time yeah so i i can really go back to a lot of important parts of my life it's the silly things that i don't remember and probably the this the 60s 70s yeah the 70s i started partying i made up for lost time because i was always working i never got to a party i never was drinking and all of a sudden at 70 I've now started on television. I'm a bit of a face. I've now got a profile. People are booking me. And all of a sudden, I found drink. And I thought, oh, I like this, you know. So I partied for 10 or 15 years. And um, that, that sort of time, it's a bit of a blur to me. So there's, there's the before part and the after part. But that middle part was a little bit hazy to me. <laughs> I, I liked what you said earlier about you worked constantly you've all you know you've got a great work ethic and i read something that showed me that you were very pragmatic it says you did a lot of you said i did a lot of television for 25 years and then i didn't do television and i was thinking was that just was it a case of the the offer stopped for television or did they want something different at that point that wasn't quite what you were offering that's exactly what it was uh, i had done my own series for 10 years on stv I had then moved on to LWT with Copycats, and we did three or four series of that. Then I got a chain letters quiz show. That then there was the World Varieties and all these things, and I was doing everything, everything. And then it was like overnight. I had three series in the book. One was another series of Copycats. One was a show called In Company, I think it was, with Aidan J. Harvey, and the third one was a quiz show on Scottish Television. And all of them in three weeks were gone. Uh, LWT changed the head management and they came in and said, no, the old regime's out. We're coming in with a new young alternative comics. Uh, another head of Thames Television left and I was out. And the Scottish Television one was cancelled because they didn't have the budget. So it was a really strange time. And fortunately, the two television series that were cancelled paid me. So financially, it wasn't a problem. But I just thought, oh, times are changing. And a friend of mine called it, you're a spat maker and nobody wants spats anymore. He said, so you better find something else to do. And it wasn't long after that I went into musicals and I just went back to being on the road and being on cruise ships and doing theatre. So 
I I knew I'd had my run and it wasn't a problem to me. You know, I just I just kept working, never stopped. But it's television such a I don't know what the word is, whimsical or I was talking to an actor recently and he was in Star Wars and uh he he was in the new thing Andor on Disney and he was in Rogue One, one of the Star Wars movies. And I said, That Duncan, that must have set you up, you know. And he said, After I filmed Star Wars, I got no work for a year. Wow. I, and I, th- I cannot believe, and he says there are so many good actors that he's surrounded by who don't get the work that they are they are deserving of. And I suppose you must see this with all the people that you're You must see people that go, well, I don't know why they've succeeded and maybe they should have succeeded. Do you see it as yeah. a, it's so arbitrary? Well, there, there's, it's, it's show business is such a weird thing. I mean, for when I started at the age of 12, 13 and then, really started when I left school working six nights a week. I couldn't understand why I wasn't making it because I was ripping the clubs apart. Everywhere I went, they put me on top of the bill. I was getting the most money of all the club artists. This was all around Edinburgh and Glasgow and Fife. And as I say, the work in those days was, you could work every night of the week for months and months and months. And uh, I just couldn't understand it. And I was, my dad was saying, we don't know why you're not hitting it. And he'd tell television people, why are you not using this boy? No, 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 wouldn't use it, wouldn't use me. And then Scottish television comes along and Clark Tate, who was the head of Scottish television, gave me a special, which was out of the blue, a one-hour special. Then David Bell saw that and he put me into a series. And all of a sudden, it was like I was the flavour of the month and uh, I, I got everything that was going. So then everybody else who was round about me working were probably going, how come he's getting this and I'm not getting it? <laughs> so it, it was a full circle. And as I say, I got a good 20 years out of it and it set me up. I uh, My dad was always one for making sure I saved my money. And uh, as much as I, I did live high, he was piling it away for me. So when he died, he had pensions set up everywhere. And I got all these I got all these uh, certificates and papers. And eventually when I got to the right age, I handed them over to a, a, a financial advisor and he said to me wow he said your dad was your dad was a very sharp astute man and he had set me up for life so um I, i'm very very lucky to have uh, to have had this wonderful dad what did what did he do alan before he was your manager what did you do to make a living well he he would have worked every hour that god sent just to give us a good life and he did we we, we were going to spain on holiday when Nobody even gone further than Blackpool. He was he made us a great life. But he would work three jobs. He, he was working in the GPO, which was British Telecom. That was his solid money. And he had shops, and he, then he had a fish shop, then he had a clothes shop. And then eventually he found secondhand cars to be the thing that he could make most money at. So he was a car dealer. Oh. And uh, he managed to be able to run me, GPO, and the cars all at the same time. He, he gave me a great work ethic. Was he a funny man? Very, very funny. Very dry. If we ever went on holiday, within uh, a day, everyone was sitting around listening to his stories and his jokes. He loved jokes. And it was him that started writing material for me because I was just a singer in the beginning, a singer-guitarist, or a get folk as we called it in those days. And uh, he would uh, he would write stuff and say, try this wee line. It's just a wee joke I remember. And I do it and I get a laugh and I go, oh, I like this. And then he said to me, I think you could do impressions. So he, he started pushing me towards impressions. And that was where everything changed. When I started doing impressions, that was when TV opened up because 
that was very big at the time. And um, he was instrumental in getting me my first record deal, getting me my biggest television show, which was Sunday night at the London Palladium, which was 26 million people watched it. That changed my career overnight as well. So he he just, he was a, a wheeler dealer and he knew how to get indoors. And that was how he got me into everything that I did. Scott's Care has a dedicated employment service to help people back into work. Our job coaches can help with skills ranging from writing a CV to building confidence in interviews. Job applications can be tough, and we're here to help with this too. Your, your comedy, I was watching some of, of you on YouTube the other day, and your comedy's always been gentle and, and silly and quite innocent. And I realised about halfway through this, it was, must have been about an eight or nine minute clip, I was sitting there with this massive grin on my face and I, you know, I think this was 96 or 97 and it was still timeless because it was just funny. And I just wonder whether comedy these days has got quite dark sometimes, hasn't it? Well, comedy is really, really difficult now, you know, and for the first time ever in my life, I was kind of censored on, on the ship recently where the, the, the lovely girl that I work with who books the ships come on and said, Alan, look, I don't want to have to see this, but there's been a complaint. And it was, I was making fun of old people. Well, I said, I'm not, I said, I'm an old person myself. I said, so I'm only making fun of myself, really. And all I was doing was the way they walk and the way they, they, they do things on the ship. But I said, look, I know we're living in a different world now. I said, I will take these bits out. It amounts to about three minutes in a, 50 or 60 minute act I said so it's not a big problem um, I have to say I put them back in again because after I thought this is stupid and I've had no complaints but, but people can complain now and that's what Twitter's about people are allowed to say anything people are allowed to cancel you and and it's, there's got to be a backlash soon because we, we've gone to the ridiculous lengths stopping people doing comedy and saying things yeah, I do worry about it. I, I said this to many people. I worry about it for, for my children. I've got three kids, 13, nine, and four. And my 13-year-old, I think he's scared of saying anything. And I, I also say to him, you've got to watch what you put on social media, Noah, because it could wow. hang around there for the next 25 years and come back and bite you on the arse at one point. Definitely. That's the thing. I mean, it's not as if it's not as if you just say it now and that's it. I mean, they, people delve back into what you said years ago. And if they delve back into me, I'd be in real trouble because I was part of the the, the scene that was the Bernard Manning and the, the Frank Carsons who were all doing jokes that were now deemed as racist. Yeah, and, there's a lot of stuff, yeah, that, you know, culturally inappropriate. I was talking to someone recently about films that were made in the 80s and they were saying, well, should these films now be cancelled because they are now seen as being culturally inappropriate? And I was thinking... I don't think you can go cancel in history. That you know, when you start burning books, it never ends well. Well, the, the very first thing that started was when I was doing Jolson the first time round. We I blacked up. That was in 1986, 1996. And it was only for about three, three minutes in the whole show. And nobody really bothered then. Uh, that was it. And then next time round, around about uh, 2005, six, we couldn't do it. And now I don't even think I could do Jolson, even the story, because people go, oh, no, you can't, you can't talk about this man. This man was, was a racist. He wasn't a racist. That's what you did in those days. Mm. And all I'm doing is, is creating 
history and showing what happened in those days when he was in show business and the biggest entertainer in the world. So uh, it has made a big difference to uh, to our comedy life. There's no doubt about it. I think I think Jolson because I saw that back in the nineties as um, a long time ago. That was the first time I think I realised you could. How does <laughs> I could really sing, Alan? You could really sing because I thought before when I saw you in Panto or stuff, I thought, oh, there's a guy who can sing. And then I saw you in Jolson, and then I, I watched a clip of you just the other day again on YouTube doing a Freddie Mercury impersonation. Oh and yeah, it yeah. was bloody superb. It just, I just thought, oh, you've nailed that. It was, it was Thank the one where you do um, Freddie Mercury and oh, and Montserrat Caballé. Yes. Super. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, that was one of the big numbers. In fact, I, I get excited every time I hear a, a big duet's coming out, and I excited Elton John, Britney Spears. I thought, oh yes, this is going to be a big duet. I'm going to be able to get a new up to date something. And then out comes a song which is, you wouldn't know if it was Elton John or or Britney Spears. So that was another one. I'll just wait for that other the next Barcelona to come out. It's been a long time. It is. Um, yeah. You were you but, were doing live from Her Majesty's. I know this is a random question. I just wanted to ask you about it. When Tommy Cooper passed away, that must have been something that's etched on your memory. Well, actually, it's it's wrong. If that, I think it says it in Wikipedia, and I've never. Yeah. But I didn't. I did the week after Tommy Cooper died. Oh, that's interesting. It was Les Dennis and Dustin G who were standing at the side of the stage waiting to come on when Tommy Cooper slid down the curtain and died, which incidentally is the way I want to go. I want to be in my frock as Auntie May. I want to go. Oh. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> Dead, oot, carry me out, and that'll be it. That's oh my the gosh! <laughs> let's talk about life. Let's let's talk with my dress on. That's what I want. That's what I want. <laughs> let's talk about your children. You've got two children, Kate and and David, and they're both yeah. hugely successful in their own right. Did did you ever encourage them to take a a more stable path through life? To to say, don't go into show business. Uh, no, I didn't, because uh, the funny thing was, as much as my dad was my manager and 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 helped me in every way, he still always said, you have to have something to fall back on. So I stayed in school till eight, 17, or whatever it was, 17, 18, got hires and got all levels. God knows why. I've never used algebra in my life, and I don't intend to. And I was different with my kids. I always remember going up to school, Jane and I going up to David's school and he was uh, about 10 or something. And the teacher, chemistry teacher said, Mr. and Mrs. Stewart, uh, he's just not quite grasping this chemistry. He said, so what I'd like to do is keep him back half an hour after his class. He said, and I'll work with him. And I went, can I stop you there? He said, yeah. I said, you're wasting your time. He said, what do you mean? I said, he's never going to use chemistry. Trust me. But Mr. Stewart, I'm willing to give my time. I said, no, trust me. You're wasting. He will never use it. And I could see Jane looking at me. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> but I knew behind me, David would be thinking to himself, thank you, Dad. But I knew he wasn't going to do that. He had show business in him, as Kate did, from, from the age of five. I could see it. Yeah, Kate's, Kate, am I right? Thank you. Kate's a singer. And, and David, who he's done very well as a, as a singer-songwriter, now lives in LA. Yes. A producer and a songwriter. He had. Uh, just during lockdown, he had the biggest uh, global hit, number one hit for BTS called Dynamite, which went global everywhere. It was number one, 1. 1.5 billion downloads or something like that. 
And uh, he also had, he's also had a big hit with Jonas Brothers, and he's he's now out there working with Shania Twain and uh, Mimi Webb, and just every big name at the moment is clambering to work with my son David at the moment. So it's a very very, very exciting time. He's is got he a house back for Christmas. He's coming back. Yes, we, we we've had a very very uh, traditional Christmas every year. We go to the Preston Field House Hotel in Edinburgh, and we stay there for about six days during the panto, and the kids come up. And we have Christmas morning and we have lunch and we just go out for a walk. And it's a beautiful Christmas because it's a stunning hotel. So uh, they're coming up. Um, my daughter, Kate, she's got a, a new recording deal. She's been working on that. The lockdown killed that stone dead in the beginning, but she's getting it back up to speed again. Had a few singles out and she's got an EP coming out in the beginning of the year. And she works live now and she's a stunning singer, a wonderful singer. And a writer as well. She's a great songwriter. So um, it's it's a it's a great buzz to watch your kids being successful. And David has moved much further than I ever expected him to go. I knew he was talented, but he's just gone way beyond my my dreams. And personally, for you, because you're always busy, Alan. Do you have ambition? Do you still want to do something? I know you you you've said that you were never really an actor, and then you popped up in a soap opera. Yes, that's that's the latest thing. That's the weirdest thing. I was I was sitting on the ship about two months ago, and you very rarely get phones phone calls at sea because you you you've not got the satellite. And all of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's the producer of River City, and he said, "Hi, Alan." Said, yeah, he said, "We'd love you to do a cameo part in River City." I was uh, really interested in the challenge because I've acted, but not on television. So I really uh, spoke to them and they, they said, well, here's the script. And I said, can I change it? They said, change it as much as you want. We want you to make it humorous. So I, I rewrote the script and sent it back. And they went, we love it. We love it. So they went with my script. Oh, I mean, that's bloody cheat to say to somebody, a, a television show that's been going for 20 years, can I write my own script? And they said, yes. So um, I went up and did it. The first day I was a bit like, I felt rabbit in the headlights. I've been told since, no, I wasn't. Uh, the second day, it kind of clicked in and I realised how to go about it and what to do. So time will tell. It goes out on the uh, it goes out uh, beginning of December, I think. And uh, you will see it. In fact, you may have seen it already or maybe you'll get it on catch up or something. So um, you'll be able to say yourself, nah, nah, he's not an actor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I doubt it. I bet you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? The final thing I'd like to ask you, Alan, I think if you could peek over the shoulder of 17-year-old Alan Stewart now, is is there anything that you would say to him, do this differently or change this or go in this direction? Any advice you'd give you give your younger self? I, I think I would say that those years that I talk about being a bit hazy, that I, I got a little bit, as well as hazy, I got a little bit lazy and I didn't change my act much. And I tended to be living on my, my success and uh, I, I think if I looked back on it, I would say uh, I, I would love to have the work ethic that I had when I met Jane. Once I met Jane, I, I stopped partying, I, I settled down and I thought, right. And I started again. And that was when the real uh, the real sort of uh, way of working came back to me like it had been uh, in the younger days. So I, I, I don't regret all the partying and having fun and having a, a great time and traveling and all, just thinking about living the top life I don't regret it because it was a wonderful part of my life but I think I would like to have said 
work harder in those 10 years, which may sound ridiculous because I never stopped working. But I was, I, was, I was not working as hard as I should have been. That, that's, that's the one mistake I made. But then again, I always look at it and say, well, if I had been working harder and, and do, doing a different, doing more television, I might not have met Jane. I wouldn't have had my children and I wouldn't have, the sliding doors moment, I might have yes. missed my chance of meeting Jane. And Jane has been the most incredible wife. Um, we've not, we don't argue, 35 years married, we don't argue. We go on great. I love her sense of humor. She's the only person that that really makes me laugh, and uh, I'm very, very lucky. So, seventeen year old, maybe work a little bit harder in those ten years. Alan, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thanks for being on the Scots Care podcast today. My pleasure. I love talking about myself, so it's never a problem. Have a great Christmas. Thank you, and you too. See you later. Bye. Scots Care is a charity helping disadvantaged Scots within 35 miles of Charing Cross with financial, practical and emotional support. For 400 years, it's been a shoulder to lean on for Scots away from home. 